0: Welcome to your sanity safe space With your favorite YouTube podcast duo Or at least one of them, it kinda depends And probably some rando too But no complaining, cause this is free Free! This is Beauty and the Beta Bonus Audio Content Hello and welcome to the show. Last week I was a guest on the Vance Crow podcast. Vance is a communications consultant with a very wide-ranging background, but what brought him to me is a shared value of freedom and liberty. He hosted me for a segment to talk about my YouTube channel and our show and how to maintain or maybe even advance a philosophy of freedom despite all of 2020's threats against it if you like what you hear. And I hope that you will check out the Vance Crow podcast using the links in the description. Thanks for listening and enjoy. Like what what counts as an aggression against another person? You know, I mean, that's kind of at the core of a lot of liberty uh, or libertarian philosophy. Certainly, if I walk up and punch you in the face, like, yeah, that's, that's that's not square with the non-aggression principle. Right. But if I'm just out there existing, I mean, today, if, you, if you're out in public without a mask on, for example, that's viewed as an aggression against other people.
1: I'm Christina Hudson Kohler, an egg processing manager living in Syracuse, New York, and you are listening to the Vance Crow podcast. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm glad you're here. Today, I talk with a man I've never met before, but I've actually listened to for hours upon hours on end. His name is Matt Christensen, and he's a political commentator and news analyst that has built up his own media empire. Matt does things quite differently than other people. I find his moderate pace, his way of having a little bit of wit and some sarcasm in what he's saying, but always having a consistent, principled approach, something that allows me to listen to his perspective and decide for myself what I think about it. Matt agreed to come on the podcast uh, after I had heard him talk about liberty in a way that I had never heard anyone describe before. So we have a very quick 30-minute conversation that I think that you will enjoy. It is the type of conversation that happens because there are so many people putting interesting ideas out in the world on things like YouTube. If you're interested in joining a community that allows you to think differently, that is actually a collection of people that have very different ways of viewing how they should approach different problems, how they should think about what's going on in the world, Then you may enjoy the Articulate Ventures Network. If you're interested in looking into it a little bit and you want to find out what we're all about, go to network.articulate.ventures to see if that's a group you'd like to join to play with ideas and uh, explore different ways of thinking. Until then, we're going to head to this interview with uh, Matt Christensen, YouTuber and political analyst extraordinaire. Matt Christensen, welcome to the podcast thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So I am um, probably a pretty tried and true libertarian. I always Mm -hmm. think liberty over basically everything else. And I was listening to your live stream a few weeks ago, and you said something that really hit me square between the eyes that I had never thought about the libertarian ideology, which is that liberty has to be the thing that you freely choose as your top priority Otherwise, it is of almost no value at all. Because if you if you put anything else above liberty, then you don't have liberty.
0: Yeah. Well, I think we're we're watching a lot of that in real time right now. That uh, that if it doesn't exist in our hearts and minds as a people, that uh, it'll be sacrificed at every other level, including you know in the government and culture, uh, at the business level, everywhere. So. Man, I mean, uh, talk about a stress test for uh, principles. Twenty twenty has been uh, nothing but, you know.
1: You know, there is like this weird um, push where you are, where everyone around you is saying, "If you do anything that jeopardizes the safety of other people, you are bad." And yet, <laughs> I think there is people that have like an intrinsic value of liberty, and like I think that that hasn't been stress tested as much as it's about to be in the
0: next couple of months. Mm. Yeah, we're we're entering a. A really weird time as far as uh, like what what counts as an aggression against another person? You know, I mean, that's kind of at the core of a lot of liberty uh, or libertarian philosophy. Certainly, if I walk up and punch you in the face, like, yeah, that's, that's that's not square with the non-aggression principle. Right. But if I'm just out there existing, I mean, today, if, you, if you're out in public without a mask on, for example, that's viewed as an aggression against other people. And they can make the argument. I'm not saying there's nothing to be said there. Viral transmission is a real thing if you want to make the case. But increasingly, we are seeing more and more passive forms of behavior viewed as aggression itself. It's a really uh, weird time. And I don't know. I don't know what the end point on that is just being a person standing there can be viewed as aggressive. <laughs> it's a weird time. I've never heard of that before, but here we are.
1: Well, and you think about the founding fathers, like there were absolutely uh, diseases being spread at the time yeah. when they were writing the constitution. And so if they thought, no, somebody being sick and spreading it to other people is something we should empower the government to stop at all costs, then we'd be in a different game. But it's only been just now that we're saying your disease can be something that I can hold against you.
0: Yes. And uh, yeah, obviously, I think we have a moral responsibility to try to minimize that. I'm not going to go out and deliberately infect any other person. I'm not going to try to do those things. But to your point, coronavirus, this may be a novel virus. It may have um, it may have more uh, contagious properties than other viruses. But um, but the idea of viral transmission being new, it's not new. This is some we just haven't thought about it in this way before. Uh, uh, we had um, Dave Cullen on our show a few months back and he made the point, this was back in the spring. And I hadn't thought about it this way either, but you you and you almost certainly have had a contagious virus of some sort, whether it's the flu, whether it's something else. And you unknowingly have probably passed that to another person (laughs) who in turn passed that to somebody who's elderly compromised in that way. If we think about you, if we think about, all of history and the way we think about 2020 and the coronavirus, you are undoubtedly responsible for someone's death. It's probably true for every single one of us. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to minimize that, but we have to to remember that this has been going on for a long time. And that by simply being a person, like viruses are a biological reality. They do pass from person to person. You're not gonna. You're not gonna ever stop that. Strictly speaking, we can try to minimize, but at what cost? You know, the the metaphor I kind of I like to use when we think about these problems, and I talk about people who might uh, I talk with people who might disagree with me. I mean, a lot of things can be achieved by totally isolating people and limiting humans to no interaction whatsoever. <laughs> but the question is, is it moral? Like, I can reduce the murder rate by confining every single person to an isolated cell. I can I can drop the murder rate to zero. Would that be moral to do that, though? I don't know a lot of people who would say yes to that, but the, the reasoning extends that far. I know it sounds absurd. Like, that. oh, that'll never happen. That's that's so crazy. But if you, what is your limiting principle that stops you from just locking people up such that no harm could ever possibly be committed between them? I haven't heard it. You know, so a lot of people
1: are probably wondering like, who are you? Cause I just jumped right in because I was so interested in your Liberty conversation, but there's a reason that you've been able to think these thoughts all the way out, which is that you spend a great deal of your time being a political commentator. What is it that you do with your time? What is the setup behind you? Who are you?
0: Yeah. Well, I'm a, I I do my own YouTube show. I do my own independent media and that's kind of by accident, really. Like it's a a hobby I started several years back, but I've been doing it full time for about four years. So uh, mattchristiansandmedia.com is where that's the the home for all my stuff if people want to check it out. But uh, but yeah, I do uh, a long form stream uh, that you might be referencing. We do that every Sunday night for a couple hours. And uh, we're talking about, you know, the week's news and all the latest ongoings in politics and culture and all that. That's more of a current events type thing. And then I'm doing my own short videos twice a week. Those are usually in the 10 to 15 minute range. And I'm talking about one specific topic in a very focused way. Those are more um, like written out, planned ahead of time, scripted such that I can be as precise as possible. But yeah, all of this was, um, it's just something I started doing a few years ago because I enjoyed doing it. And, and lo and behold, it's, uh, it's, it's taken off such that I could make something of it. And so I've been doing it for about uh, four years now, full time.
1: Were you always a person that liked talking about politics or news because you have this weird yeah. amalgamation of your show. it's It's not just politics. It's usually the news that is not being represented in a way that uh, shows the full scope. But it's also not just politics either. it's It's a very no. interesting blend
0: no we've kind of i mean we have such weird niches like i've had a fascination with hoax hate crimes for years now so it's like every <laughs> every week we're doing the hoax hate crime of the week i mean way way before Jesse Smollett and all that stuff like I, I find that stuff really fascinating but yeah i we we call it like what i started doing the stream we called it uh, the sanity safe space as a joke it, it's not like hard news it's not like we're sitting there and and trying to replicate a uh CNN or Fox Broadcast. I think really what we're trying to do is create a home to discuss current events with people who are like-minded, people who who turn on cable news and and see the, see it for the crap that it is. And people who generally are of a like a conservative or a pro-liberty perspective. We've a pretty wide range of views in our audience from people who are much more authoritarian for my liking. It's actually it's it's pretty interesting and it's fun to interact with them. People who are you know people who are of a right-wing perspective that is more authority heavy than I would like but that's one of the reasons I like doing it like it, I, we we have a broad audience of a lot of different perspectives and it's not a home for one one very specific narrow viewpoint so so the the show has kind of evolved into its own community and that's that's why we we love doing it man it's uh it's uh, people are are making friendships in the audience people are the we had uh audience members just get married the last couple of weeks so uh lots of cool stuff happening that way and it's just it's developed in its own Organic way, you know, I think the thing
1: that strikes me about it, like I don't like listening to live streams. I think oftentimes Mm -hmm. people's uh, just off the top of their head, their random conversations that are just spread out into three hour conversations are not interesting. But you're exactly right about your podcast in that ordinarily. The way that people show off how am I conservatives is they juxtapose it against how the liberal opposite side. And so you only see the pole of of one side or the other. And within yours, you've taken conservatism and opened it up and found areas that I'm like, woo, I do not agree with that. I don't like that. I don't like sure. it being said. But then you also hear some ideas that you have to grapple with and it's so much more nuanced to me what you're doing than what you can find almost anywhere else, and it's because you're not focused
0: just on the polls. I appreciate that, thank you. I mean, I and I have to thank our audience too. Uh, it's not like I, I mean, our show is a reflection of the community that's behind it too, and and it's not that it's not as though I have sat down and and deliberately tried to craft every single element of it specifically. Some of it is just. The trends that, uh, the trends in the audience, the trends of of the people who enjoy the show. We might do a particular segment or a style of story that really hits with people. So it's like, well, let's, let's kind of dig into this stuff a little bit more and let's, let's follow this pathway a little bit more. It's a, it's, um, I love doing it. I love doing it as much now as I did, um, when we started doing it four years ago. And, um, and yes, yeah, your point, like I, I, I'm trying to give it as I'm trying to give it structure such that three hours isn't just rehashing the same point over and over again without it being so scripted that it's someone just sitting there reading for three hours. I don't want that either. So, um, yeah, well, I, I have a co-host
1: that- that's been willing to say things that I think in the <laughs> audiences that I spend time with, the, the ag audiences, there are a lot of people that have the same thoughts that she does. Yeah, would never dare to say them like her. She has very strong feelings against divorce and very strong feelings about uh, raising other people's children. And I I certainly don't agree with everything she says, but I am fascinated
0: when she says it. That's uh, that's part of the fun. You know, I like to think that uh, that um, that we balance each other out. Uh, She's very. Someone in the chat said last night, like Matt's going to come at you with like calm reason. That's going to be his angle. Blonde's going to shank you in the back. That's basically <laughs> the approach. And um, I like, I've, I've enjoyed working with her because I think we really do balance each other out. I'm not going to be the guy who's going to be cutthroat and blunt in the way that she is. That's not to say that that's always applicable. I, I, I will always stand by the idea of persuading people with reason and calmer heads winning the day that said in many ways, we are in a cultural knife fight right now, and I think that that her bluntness and her wake-up calls are are very uh, important. They've certainly, I like to think that that I pull her off the cliff edge a little bit sometimes, but I, I, I think that she gets me to wake up on some real threats to my values more more quickly than I might if it, if I was just left to myself. How long do you think we've been in a cultural knife fight? Ooh, uh, well, certainly the the entire duration of of Trump's presidency, maybe a little bit before that, too. But I, I think that the election of him in 2016 sent uh, I think it sent a lot of people made a lot of people totally crazy and willing to undermine the integrity of this country's institutions to achieve their ends. That That's really when I woke up to it, at least was around 2015, 2016.
1: When So I used to work for Monsanto, which, you know, mm. much maligned, hated company, but it gave me an opportunity to go into places that I would never have been able to see otherwise. And I had a chance to go to the Clinton Global Initiative and see mm. how are they working? How are they bringing people together? And I remember sitting in those meetings that were supposed to be for everyone. They were bringing everybody from Walmart and the Monsantos of the world connected with mayors in San Francisco. And I mean, just this huge amalgamation. And I remember sitting there thinking they are not debating ideas. They are telling everyone here, this is what you will believe if you want to get benefit from this. And I remember, like, having this revelation in the middle of being about four rows away from Bill Clinton and being like, I want to get the fuck out of here. (laughs) But that's when I really realized, like, we're in a cultural knife fight and that the way that people think is not the way that I that I think
0: Well, I think you're exactly right. It's not just that people disagree with me. Obviously, I'm more than happy to have a conversation with people who disagree with me, and I'll try to persuade them, and sometimes they persuade me, and that's great. That's what makes the world go around. What you're talking about is exactly what is that is the sort of uh, just cultural authoritarianism that is trying to eat us all, And and it's not looking to persuade you on the ideas. It's not looking to convince you of a certain worldview. It's telling you this is the way it is, and if you don't get on board, you will face punishment. I had a similar awakening in a a workplace when I, when I had a, you know, a quote unquote real job prior to doing this. (laughs) And I, and and I don't know how uh, familiar with like my, my past or history you are, but I used to be like, I used to be one of the good Democrats. I used to be one of the lefties, you know, get in line and vote for Obama. That was me. And um, I, I worked at a, in a, in a pretty progressive office space. And one of the last meetings I had before I left that job was uh one of these like racial equity type trainings. I was not I had not had an awakening to see this for what it was at the time. I thought like at the time I'm thinking oh this is this is where we go and learn about sensitivity and this is going to be great. This is how we're better colleagues and all that. But they they backed off on this, thankfully. It didn't happen. But the original idea that was floated was discussion groups segregated by race in this workplace. There was going to be the white table and the black table. And it didn't happen. But, and I know there were some people, I had kind of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink relationship with some of the people at work. Like we kind of knew some of this stuff was crap. But uh, but that for me was one of the moments where I was like, what, what, what? I mean, and this is, keep in mind, this is a work environment where everyone's on a union contract. Everyone who's doing the same job is making the same money. There's no gender wage gap there. There's no racial wage gap there. Most of the people I worked with were minority women. And we're still going to sit around and pretend that there's some white male domination here. All my bosses were minority women, and it, had still, it was still infecting that workspace. And if you dared say anything against the narrative of such a meeting, you're probably gone. You know.
1: Well, one of the things, I was just talking about this with a good friend of mine the other day, is I don't think people realized the extent to which the public relations firms that consult with major fortune 500 companies are driving forward the divisiveness in the world and like my hypothesis is that it's a bunch of people that were party kids in college that didn't actually get real educations they studied Mm -hmm. communications which is what i studied so i'm i was right there with them and i I was was a
0: political science kid yeah i mean i i know how it goes
1: and and so they're sitting there in um pr firms And they are the type of highly agreeable. We want to get along with everybody. Hey, everybody says that the nice thing to do is to implement these standards or to not say these things. And the executives of the company are running the company. They aren't thinking about this stuff. They aren't thinking deeply and philosophically. They're just like my PR company says we need to put in these things in order to be liked by the public. Fine, let's do it. And once you've taken one step down that path, then the party girls from college are the ones that are driving your social policy. When you were describing target the other day, guaranteed that is being driven by their PR firm. And people don't realize how much of an impact PR firms are having on our culture right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I I haven't been, I haven't worked in that sort of environment for going on five years now. So I don't know what, I have no idea what it's like now, (laughs) but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I we in our audience, uh, going back to you know why why I think our community is so successful. It's so suffocating for so many people that you just need an outlet to be able to discuss why this stuff is crap. And I think that's an indictment on our culture, corporate America, all these places where we've decided there's one narrow worldview that's accepted, and if you don't get on board, you're not going to have gainful employment, at least in um, um, in the country's major employers, for example. In
1: it, like. When you're piercing through all of the media narrative, how are you finding these things? Because I actually do turn to you to be like, I don't know what happened in Minneapolis last weekend, but Mm. I get, I get probably most of my news as crazy as it sounds from you and maybe two or three other people, but I don't even know where you begin to find all of the information that you have about what's Mm. going on when, when the media clearly has a different narrative than what yours is.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I like to watch and listen and read the news with a skeptical eye. That's, that's basically my job at this point. It's uh, it's just, I just enjoy it. It's it's a fun thing to do. But as far as I don't necessarily have like a strategy of I go to this place and find that piece of information. What I do is I have um, many different uh, sort like just general news sources aggregated that I might check on a daily basis. So I'll go, I'll bookmark. Lefty sources, like I'm looking at Politico and Huffington Post on pretty much a daily basis, but I'm looking at um, you know Breitbart, Daily Wire, Daily Caller as well, and generally, like I, I, what I do is I just find something that I think is interesting and then I'll dig into it a little bit. Like if something grabs my attention at the headline level or just as a concept, I want to know more about it, and and what I Found obviously, I'm not doing journalism in the the original fact finding sense. Like, I'm not going on the street and and finding that information. Maybe in the future I could. I don't know. I I mean, that's uh, you know, there, there there's a lot of logistical difficulty in doing that. So I got have admiration for people who are doing that. But um, I've found that in general, just from like a media consumer perspective, if you find four, five, six sources on the same general story and piece them together, you're going to find the missing pieces that help explain some of the more sensationalized stuff that might exist in different uh, descriptions of the story. So that's, that's kind of my, my strategy. I, I, uh, I like to find something that interests me and go into that one thing deep. And uh, so I might, you know, I might not know everything about all the major stories across the country. I'm going to spend a couple days a week looking at one specific story and learning as much about it as I possibly can
1: so as a person that drives their income through the you know tech companies whether it's YouTube or, or the various streams that you have are you worried about um, being targeted and and shut out of the
0: of the attention ecosystem I'm surprised that we I'm surprised we've lasted as long as we have I me too actually. we, <laughs> I, we um, I've been told <laughs> I've been told by someone who claims to have knowledge on the inside of YouTube that we might have a friendly figure in there but I don't know I there's nobody I can talk to at YouTube and be like uh, like if I have a problem, I, I have to just yell at them until someone responds. I don't even have a contact with them. Now, as far as um, income is concerned, you're exactly right. Like the writing has been on the wall in that arena for years. So the name of the game as with anything is just diversify. Um, and we've been doing that not only with our revenue streams, but with our presence. So if YouTube axes us tomorrow, I mean, I have everything going through my own independent website so our audience could find it there. We have uh, people watching on Bitchute, We have people watching on DLive. There's no, obviously like any axe could drop any day and that includes YouTube. And that would be the most painful axe to have swung at us, but the day's probably coming. Um, but there's no, if you're in this arena, you have to set it up just like anything else. You have to diversify all your risks. And if any one axe was swung, it's not going to be lethal for us. We're going to, our, our audience is durable. And I think that's true for a lot of people who, um, who build something similar. You build a community like this, Susan at YouTube, she can do some damage, but she can't actually sever us from our audience because the demand exists. You know, it's, it's, all of these Silicon Valley overlords who are amazed to see, well, if you start banning conservatives or libertarians and they migrate to parlor, for example, oh, I can't believe it. I thought they would just disappear and go into a corner and die if we banned them. And their audience would suddenly decide to watch CNN instead. It doesn't work that way. It's just a question of if Susan is smart enough to, should just continue to allow us to operate on her platform and earn her money. I, I can't, I can't believe that it's difficult for these people. It's like you've built fantastic infrastructure unrivaled in the history of the world all you have to do is sit back and shut up shut the hell up and allow the revenue to flow but they can't do it they can't do it they have to intervene so what what do you think is
1: driving people like you know jack dorsey i watch him being grilled on um by congress and i think like these people seem impervious to what mm. people are trying to wake them up to is that you're blocking out entire wall, like entire ecosystems of, of different ways of thinking. And it appears no. to me that they, th-
0: it they don't agree that that's what they're doing. I think, I think Jack is a little bit of a special case. I, I don't think that he has as much oversight or control of Twitter as some of the other uh, CEOs do. If you, uh, the, the, I sort of realized this back when he went on um on Rogan's show with Tim Poole and uh Vijaya his uh well, I forget what her title is like legal count whatever. It seemed like she is actually pulling the strings and pushing the buttons at twitter he was he he didn't have an understanding of what's going on at his company you you would watch Tim Poole ask him questions about specific happenings. he had no idea he didn't even know what those things were so Jack, I think. Yeah, I'm guessing that he's handed off most responsibility to to uh you know, these virtuous progressive overlords like Vijaya, whatever her name is. I can never remember. <laughs> and uh And I think she's doing the work, but to your broader question of like, of why do they do this? I mean, that's, that's the million dollar question. I remain baffled at how many companies are are willing to sacrifice their bottom line and their obligation to their investors in pursuit of the progressive narrative and the degree to which investors appear to let them off the hook for that. I mean, if you're, if you're a major investor in, in Twitter, which um, you know, has had a, a, a rough financial history the last few years. If you're a major investor in Target, for example, to return to that story, uh, sorry, you're going to tell me that you just suffered a multi-million dollar loss in Minneapolis. And your answer is to rebuild at the exact same spot, but double down the progressive narrative. If I'm an investor in that company, I have a lot of questions about that strategy because I think that's bound to lose me money. And and yet that doesn't really happen. You haven't seen like mass rebellion at uh, uh, from, from investors in these companies. People are content to lose money in pursuit of the narrative. It it, it baffles me. I don't know why.
1: I mean, it shocks me because um, in the ag world, there were six major companies and there was just giant consolidation where ChemChina bought Syngenta, Bayer um, bought Monsanto. Uh, it's just a very huge consolidation. And I always thought, if you wanted to run anybody else off the table among your farmer customers is just mm-hmm. go tell them what your corporate policies are. Because the corporate policies of what's going on in the major headquarters of the ag companies is so different than what their farmer customers think that they're supporting mm. that you would cause a, a, an amazing rift between them that that would be difficult to I, to, to even describe unlike target where it's like eh, about half the people are gonna like what you're doing about half the people aren't you gonna balance it out yeah, the ad yeah. companies it would be like 90 percent in disagreement
0: yeah I I, I don't know uh, I'll ha- I wish I had any a great answer to this question but uh you know I'm not I'm not sitting on the corporate board so it remains a, a mystery to me
1: so as you look out on the next couple of months between coronavirus and an election that's not done mm-hmm. um, What do you what do you see that you think is not being talked about?
0: Well, uh, I suppose the number one concerns for me generally, I I think that the return of coronavirus, uh, not lockdown wouldn't be the right term, but just arbitrary restrictions on business that we're seeing reinstated now. Um, I have a lot of concern about those. Of course, my state here in Montana, we're battling our outgoing governor on exactly that right now. But what I worry about. Everyone seems to think, at least the people who are more on the restrictive side, they keep arguing to me, um, listen, I know it's crap and I know that we should oppose this stuff on principle, but it's a couple more months of this until the release of a vaccine and everything's going to get back to normal then. What worries me about um, the release of the vaccine is the the potential for this stuff, for, for the vaccine itself, I suppose, to be mandated, not by the state. I'm actually not worried about... Um, like the state of Montana or the federal government coming to, to mandate a coronavirus vaccine upon me. What I, what I wonder, and what a lot of people on Twitter, I know Candace Owens was tweeting about this uh, the other day, are worried about is what happens if um, the vaccine mandate replaces the mask mandate in the spring? That is to say, you will not enter this business, you will not fly on this plane, you will not enter this government building if you don't have proof of vaccination, Is that something that we will come to see? Uh, The whole bargain of this entire year has been just surrender a little bit more of your freedom today so that you'll have it returned tomorrow. That's always a fool's bargain in not just 2020, but in humanity's history. And I am very skeptical that suddenly the vaccine is going to come and set us free. And I I don't, to be clear, I don't say that from an anti-vax perspective. If you want to go out there and get the vaccine, by all means, I'm not denying the scientific efficacy of the vaccine either. I just worry that we're going to sacrifice more liberty on this road as opposed to less. And suddenly, instead of just putting a piece of cloth on your face, you're going to have to have someone stab you. Uh, against your will to participate in polite society that's obviously prospective we don't know if that's going to happen but the trajectory of 2020 has been constriction of liberty at every step i'm very skeptical that all of a sudden 2021 is going to come in and say oh it's uh it's a renaissance for liberty Uh, we're all back to our normal freedom now
1: well i think you know the vaccine point you make is exactly right and on top of that i think like the apps that colleges are using right now to every morning before you go to class, you have to say, do I have a fever? No. Do I feel OK? Yeah. Yes. Well, they also have on there uh, your location. And there are now mm-hmm. universities saying if you go further than 60 miles away from the university for Thanksgiving, uh, you don't get to finish the
0: semester. So yeah. you start having universities be able to impose travel restrictions on their people exactly and that that's what worries me it is not a a government crackdown per se it is just a united agreement on the part of business and every other institution to say uh, you will submit to conditions x y and z to be just a a basic member of society Uh, i i fear that's the trajectory that we're on which
1: then brings us all the way back to where we started in the conversation with uh liberty like i've always been a person that says "Well, let the businesses decide but then yeah. you start getting looking at the business and their power, their ability to be able to decide, and it's pretty strong. It's a lot stronger than I think I thought it was a few months ago.
0: Yeah, yeah. And of course, I, I will, on principle, defend a business's right to make their own decisions and to have their own association if they want to do something like some sort of vaccine requirement. On principle, I'm going to defend that. I, I just hope that we will have a society tolerant enough that when the other business pops up across the street that is the counter to their restrictive approach and competition rises to accommodate people who don't necessarily agree, that the par like, you know, that the parlors of the world. You don't like Twitter's restrictions, you go to parlor, that we're gonna have a society tolerant enough not to sabotage the parlors and say, okay, um, if freedom rules the day, fine, Twitter or whatever business, they'll restrict as much as they want. But you can't try to undermine the new shop across the street that has uh, been built up to accommodate those people who don't agree with you. We have to maintain a society where if you want to be restrictive in your own home, you have to have the tolerance to allow your neighbor next door the freedom that that he's trying to build.
1: Amen. Well, Matt Christensen, this has been an honor that uh, you would come on your guy. I've spent a lot of time listening to you and I was glad you said yes. If people wanted to uh, check out your podcast and more about what you're doing.
0: How would they find you? Everything I do is available on my website. That's mattchristensenmedia.com. It's a very long name. It's a uh, Christian like the religion, S-E-N, mattchristensenmedia.com. And thanks for having me. I very much appreciate it. It was a great discussion.
1: Well, I uh look forward to hearing uh hearing you and Blondie go on uh go back and forth at it for a lot of years to come. So keep going. As long man. as uh Lord Susan will allow. So. <laughs> I'll find you we'll wherever f- you go. So as long we'll, as you're putting we'll stuff out, out there, man. Great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. <laughs>